Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Yen. I'm the LACNETS Director of Programs and Outreach, as well as a caregiver and advocate for my husband who is living with NET. In each podcast episode, we talk to a NET expert who answers your top 10 questions. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Please discuss your questions and concerns with your physician. Welcome to the LACNETS podcast. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Beneath Sukathan, who is a medical oncologist at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. He specializes in the study and the treatment of neuroendocrine cancer, thyroid cancer, and adrenal cortical cancer. Those of us who do not live in Ohio may not be aware of the vast experience and expertise OSU has in the management and treatment of this disease. But you may have heard of Dr. Tom and Sue Odoricio, who served at OSU for decades and were pioneers and giants in the field, and they laid the foundation for OSU's clinical and research work. So I met Dr. Sukathan in Vienna, where he was a featured speaker on one of his research projects. And my husband and I had a really wonderful dinner at a Sri Lankan restaurant with him and his wife, which was honestly one of the highlights of the trip. I must say I was very intrigued and impressed by his passion for nets. And I learned that during Dr. Sukhadon's brief time in OSU, he has been extremely busy. Together with another medical oncologist, they see perhaps 300 new net patients a year, and they have quite a few open clinical trials for net patients. It's clear to me that Dr. Sukhadon's passion is cutting edge research. He gets very excited when he talks about research. And the research is to tailor new therapies to individuals, and in particular in this area of NET. So I want to offer this fun fact, well, actually a couple of fun facts about Dr. Sukarthan. One is that he grew up in Kuwait, which is very interesting. And his favorite movie of all time is Jurassic Park. So Dr. Sukarthan, welcome. And I'd love to hear from you. Well, first of all, why Jurassic Park? And also, how did you get involved in NETs? Thank you, Lisa, for the very kind introduction. I think Jurassic Park came out in 1993. I was going through my young boy phase where anything science and anything dinosaurs was interesting. And I had one summer where there's really not much to do because of how hot it is in Kuwait. So I probably ended up watching the movie close to 100 times over that summer. It really piqued my interest in science and genetics and, and life and what you can do with scientific research. And I think I've tried to maintain that for the rest of my career. So it's a really important movie for me. Wow. It ties into net with research and biology and science. How fun. In terms of neuroendocrine cancer, so during my medical oncology fellowship, I was at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. I had the chance to do some research in small cell lung cancers, which is a type of aggressive neuroendocrine cancer that really piqued my interest. I think the biology was really interesting. I think the fact that There's so much to learn and so much improvement that needs to happen. I really felt that in this rare tumor field, I could make a real difference. So I decided to seek out opportunities in this field. And the New Endocrine Tumor Program at Ohio State, as you'd mentioned, has, you know, is a storied institution where way back in the 50s, Dr. Zollinger and Dr. Ellison first described gastrinomas and the Zollinger-Ellison syndrome that we all know of from acid hypersecretion. And we really followed that with Dr. Dorizios and uh, Dr. Shah for that. So I felt like it was the right institution to launch my career in new endocrine tumors. Yeah, and you really did, because I know you've been very busy. So one thing about OSU and about you in particular is that you see a wide range 
of neuroendocrineumers, all neuroendocrineumers, not just GI, right? You see lung, which is our topic for today, as well as thyroid and adrenocortical and theopara too, right? Right. Yeah, it's a little bit unusual. So we call it endocrine-related cancers. I know certain groups in Europe also do it that way. So I see, in addition to the neuroendocrine tumors, which can be, as you know, in the lung or GI, but also thyroid-related tumors, adrenal cancers, pheochromocytomas, and paragangliomas. So neuroendocrine tumors and endocrine tumors in any part of the body. Well, thank you for that, because it can be difficult. It can be a challenge for patients to find someone who sees the rare of the rare, and in particular today, we're going to focus on lungs. So one thing in the way of introduction to this topic is in our patient education meetings, we tend to be lumpers because we want to serve as many people as possible. So we put all the nets together and there are commonalities, of course. There are certain treatments and there's certain ways of thinking about it, approaches, treatments, and therapies that may be similar. But we also know that not all nets are the same, right? And not only are we individuals, but the types of nets matter. So in the series, we're trying to be separators and separate out the different types of net because it matters. And there's specific things and nuances that might be helpful for patients to understand. And we know that you know this since you see the wide range. And so you can speak to the similarities, the differences, and how these nuances make a difference. So if you're ready, we'll launch into the 10 questions. Let's do it. Okay. So let's start with a basic question. What are lung nets and where are they located? So as you are currently alluded to, neuroendocrine tumors, they're a heterogeneous group of cancers, and they can arise from neuroendocrine cells anywhere in the body. A majority of the time, it's usually in the GI system, small intestine, pancreas, and that's maybe 60% of the time. But 20 to 25% of the time, actually, it's neuroendocrine cells from the lungs that form these tumors. And these are what we call lung neuroendocrine tumors. So... Coming to the specifics, they seem to arise from lung neuroendocrine cells. They can either be individual cells or small clusters in the lungs. We call these neuroepithelial bodies. And it's important to understand that lung neuroendocrine tumors are rare. It only accounts for 3% or lesser of among all lung cancers. So it's important to keep that in mind. I think it's also a good idea to make ourselves familiar with some of these terms that we'll be using to describe these tumors. Specifically, based on differentiation, which is the appearance under the microscope, we tend to classify these lung neuroendocrine tumors into two types, well-differentiated ones, which are sometimes also called carcinoids, and poorly differentiated ones, which are called neuroendocrine carcinomas. So there are two different types of well-differentiated carcinoids, also called typical carcinoid and atypical carcinoid. And these classifications are done by pathologists, based on the appearance of the tumors under the microscope, specifically by counting the number of cells that are undergoing mitoses and the number of cells that have necrosis in them. So typical carcinoids tend to be slow-growing, have fewer mitoses and no necrosis, and atypical carcinoids tend to be slightly faster-growing, more mitoses under the microscope, and more necrosis. Now, the second broad category, which is poorly differentiated carcinomas, uh, these tend to be more aggressive, unfortunately. And the WHO does mention two different types of poorly differentiated neuroendocrine carcinomas. You will hear the terms large cell and small cell being used. These tend to be more aggressive, and they're treated closer in similarity to small cell lung cancers with IV chemotherapy and such. But the majority of the patients that we'll be talking about today, and I think more pertinent to our podcast, will be well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors, 
of which typical carcinoids and atypical carcinoids are the terminology that we'll be using most frequently. Thank you for that. And speaking of terminology, we've heard that we're trying to get away from the word carcinoid. So why is this still used with lungs? The reason for that is we have two separate types of pathologists who tend to classify lung tumors and GI tumors. So on the GI side, you're absolutely right. We've tried to move away from the legacy terminology carcinoid. But in the most recent WHO thoracic pathology conference, they decided to retain the terms typical and atypical only for lung. So as of today, we are going to be using those terms. Okay. And we might sometimes hear doctors use other words other than lung nets. You might hear the word bronchial. So when is what word used? Yeah, that's a good point. So based on how the tumors are diagnosed, they can occur within the airways in which tumors are called bronchial tumors. And sometimes they're just found as nodules within the lungs. So I think an overarching terminology that we use is bronchopulmonary, which encompasses both the bronchial as well as the larger family of lung nets. Mm, okay. That's a big word. So lung nets, we'll stick with that for today. <laughs> we talked about how it can be found in the bronchioles. So how are lung nets found and what are the symptoms? So the majority of lung nets are actually found incidentally when CAT scans are done. And more scans are being done nowadays due to greater availability and accessibility to healthcare. So we are actually seeing an increase in incidence of lung nets for that reason. So if you look at the numbers between 1973 and 2012 or so, there has been an increase in incidence of new cases of lung nets. So it's actually increased from around three new cases in a million to around 15 new cases in a million in the U.S., which is a five-fold increase. We don't exactly know if there's other etiological reasons for it, but we do think that access to imaging does play a big role in finding these new cases every year. In terms of how are they found and what are the symptoms, I think it's important to realize that half the times lung nets are asymptomatic. So it's found incidentally on a scan. But half of the time people do have symptoms, which on average last for more than two years, unfortunately, before it is properly diagnosed. And the reason for that is that the symptoms can be nonspecific, and they often mimic other respiratory conditions. So asthma, COPD, these are the diagnoses that people are more familiar with, including doctors in the community, and these are the diagnoses that are made more often. And sometimes a CAT scan is only done to some of these therapies fail for the other diagnoses. So this can make diagnosis hard, and on average, people do go through around two years of treatments before the diagnosis is made, unfortunately. In terms of symptoms, most lung neuroendocrine tumors are either in one of the airways that's in the center of the chest, so we call it one of the main airways, or in one of the lobes of the lung, which is the lobar bronchi. Together, these constitute maybe 80% of lung nets, and 20% of the time, we can find it as nodules in the periphery of the lung. This is important to realize because patients with tumors in the central locations often present with respiratory symptoms. So you can have a cough, Sometimes blood tint sputum, shortness of breath, exercise intolerance, mild chest pain and wheezing. Whereas tumors that are in the periphery of the lungs, most people don't have symptoms. And it's found incidentally when a CAT scan is done for some other reason. Now, very rarely, I would say 10% of the time, some of these symptoms can be hormonal in nature. The classic carcinoid syndrome symptoms that we're familiar with from the GI sometimes can also occur. So occasionally, patients have diarrhea and flushing. 
but more commonly they have wheezing and asthma-like symptoms. So that happens in 10% of folks. And this is because we all understand that the secretion of hormones and peptides, such as serotonin, which irritates the airways, and this leads to some of these carcinoid symptoms. Extremely rarely, I would say maybe 1% of the time, lung nets are unique in that they can sometimes produce certain hormones like ACTH, which is an adrenocorticotropic hormone that can increase the levels of cortisol, and we can talk about that later. But that's a unique symptom that lung nets have that other nets don't. There are so many unique factors here with lung nets, and I really thank you for explaining all that and what a wide range there is. So oftentimes when someone is told that they have a tumor in their lung, they may actually be told they have the typical lung cancer, or they might be afraid that they have lung cancer. So how is lung net different or similar to what's commonly referred to as lung cancer? This is a great question because I think, especially right at the beginning of when you first have a diagnosis and you're Googling with a lot of anxiety, sometimes you end up finding information that doesn't pertain to your diagnosis. And I think confusing lung neonicotin tumors with lung cancers is a common issue. So I think the most important thing to realize is lung cancer, or what we call lung cancer in the community, it arises from a completely different type of cell. There's two types, something called squamous and non-squamous lung cancer, but they do not arise from neuroendocrine cells. This is the most fundamental difference. The other thing is 80% of lung cancers do occur in smokers, but not lung and neonicotin tumors. As far as we know today, there is no clear relationship to smoking or any environmental exposure and lung nets. So I think that makes it really unique. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm, I'm sure that's a relief to hear that there's not something that they did to cause it. What about this term dipneck, the I-P-N-E-C-H? Some people have heard of it. How is it different or similar to dipneck? And do all lung net people have dipneck? And do all dipneck people have lung net? So dipneck, what it stands for is diffuse idiopathic pulmonary neuroendocrine cell hypoplasia. Now, it's a long term, so it's been abbreviated to dipneck. But what it essentially is, is that it's a generalized proliferation or growth of neuroendocrine cells in the lining of the lungs. Most of the times, it's confined to just the lining. Occasionally, they form very small tumors, by which I mean less than 0.5 centimeters in size. And very rarely, they do occasionally go on to develop full-blown lung nets. Now, these cell proliferations of less than 5 millimeter, these are called tumorlets, but they don't meet the criteria for calling it a tumor. It's important to know that. So if you take, let's say, 100 patients with lung nets, the numbers do vary, but anywhere between 5 to 20% of the time, it tends to occur on a background of dipneck. So the WHO actually considers dipneck to be a precancerous condition in some situations. So there is an increased risk of developing lung nets when you do have a background of dipneck. Now, a diagnosis of dipneck is made when you have more than three of these really small tumulates, and that needs to be seen under the microscope. It's a very interesting disorder because it's not yet fully understood what the triggers are for this, but there's a very strong female preponderance. So more than 95% of patients with dipneck tend to be women. Also, it seems to be related with obesity and overweight. So that's another risk factor. And the way it's diagnosed is on a CAT scan. Radiologically, we find these what's called a ground glass haziness on the CAT scan, along with thickening of the airways and these nodules. 
So when the doctors see that in the right clinical setting, they would order some kind of biopsy of one of these nodules, and that's how we get this diagnosis. When the dipnic is diagnosed, it's about half the time you also find a lung net right at the time of diagnosis. Now, the rest of the time, lung nets can develop in patients over time, and that can happen in 20% of people. So if you don't have a straighter diagnosis, it can develop over time in 20% of the time. Most people with dipneck do have symptoms. So the most bothersome ones are a very long history of cough. Sometimes it can happen for decades before it's diagnosed. Sometimes breathlessness, sometimes wheezing. And a lot of the times it's misdiagnosis asthma. So it is something to keep in mind that if you've had a long history of, at least for practitioners in the community to know that not all cough and wheezing is asthma. Sometimes it's also dipneck, which is not that straightforward unless you've encountered it. But in our practice, we do see it quite often. And the treatment, it depends on how bad the symptoms are. So a lot of the times we do try a course of steroids to see if we can calm the inflammation in the airways. It does work. If that doesn't help, arteriotype, any of the somatostandal analog, has been shown to reduce the hormone secretion and improve symptoms also. So that's a standard treatment. And very rarely, we have had a few patients, unfortunately, who have needed lung surgery or even lung transplantation to treat their dipneck. But that's thankfully extremely rare. Wow. Thank you for that distinction and just for speaking into an area that it may be hard to find information on. How is lung net similar or different from other types of nets and what makes it unique? I think one of the challenges in what makes lung nets unique is Sometimes uh, the expression of somatostatin receptors, which we all know is kind of a hallmark of well-differentiated neuroendocrine tumors in other sites, doesn't seem to show up at the same rate in lung nets. So the expression on the surface of the tumor is highly variable. So sometimes when we get these dorotate PET scans, either gallium or copper PET scans, sometimes these tumors can be negative. And that's quite unusual for other neuroendocrine tumors that are slow-growing and well-differentiated. If you look at typical carcinoids, the vast majority of them, I think close to 100% of them, will show up on a donated PET scan. But atypical carcinoids are kind of notorious and sometimes actually not showing up. So 60% of the time, they can be negative or only extremely weakly positive. So in those situations, we do recommend the regular FDG PET scans, which are in the radio-labeled glucose injections, the, the one that's more commonly used in other cancers. So I think that makes lung nets a little bit unique. It's also for this reason that unfortunately lutathera and PRRT is not yet an approved treatment for lung nets because of this heterogeneity in expression of the receptors. It was decided that when these studies were done initially that lung patients would not be the ideal candidates for lutathera. So these studies are now being conducted. That's the good news. But as of today, it's not yet an FDA-approved treatment for lung neuroendocrine tumors. Another kind of unique presentation of lung nets is the hormone production of ACTH, which can lead to excess cortisol in the body. And sometimes we do see cases of patients with cortisol excess leading to fat redistribution in their body. So arms and legs can get thinned out. Face becomes round and moon-like is what they call. Fat redistribution on the base of the neck, it's called a fatty hump sometimes. Bruising, purple stretch marks, weakness of the muscles. So thankfully it's very rare, but Again, it's something for people to keep in mind in the community for doctors that sometimes if you do have excess cortisol in the body and the syndrome that I just mentioned called Cushing syndrome, it's a good idea to look for lung nets as one of the causes. So many ways that they're unique with somatostatin receptor expression, whether or not people are eligible for PRT, the hormonal expression. 
I'm also wondering, sometimes people with lung meds come to a support group or a patient education event, and they're hearing people talk about grades and KI-67. Does that also apply to lung meds? Yeah, wonderful question. So the grades, which we are familiar with the KI-67, it's not yet been, I would say, adopted for grading of lung meds. As of today, it is still the two ways of distinguishing it is differentiation, well-differentiated and poor-differentiated. And within the well-differentiated, based on mitosis and necrosis, we call them typical and atypical. Now, that being said, I think different guideline-setting communities do have differing opinions on the importance of KI-67. So the WHO's opinion is a little bit different from ENETS, which does recommend looking at KI-67. So I think in our clinical practice, we do like to know the KI-67. I think at some point, maybe in the future, we will move towards unified terms that we use to describe tumors. And I think KI-67 is just an important marker that we know is you know, universally important for new endocrine tumors. And I do think that's true for lung as well. But we don't have the classic grade one, grade two, grade three for lung nets the way we do for other nets. Thanks for clarifying that. So perhaps in the highly specialized net centers, the ones who see a high volume and nerd out a little bit on nets, they'll do a KI-67, but maybe not in the community. Yeah. So you talked about KI-67, a little bit about scans. So let's visit that topic. What type of lab scans or testing are done to determine if someone has lung neck and also dip neck? I think CAT scans of the chest are a no-brainer. That should be done in everyone, but also CTs of abdomen, pelvis. And we like to recommend doing multiple phase CAT scans. So a venous phase, arterial phase, and a non-contrast because some of the new endocrine tumors show up very nicely on the arterial phase of the CAT scan. So I think I highly recommend doing a multiple or triple phase scans in all of our new endocrine patients, including lung meds. I think MRI of the abdomen pelvis is also a good substitute for a triple phase scan. In addition, lung nets a little bit unique in that sometimes we do see tumors in the brains, metastases in the brains, unfortunately. So I do like to get an MRI of the brain as a baseline at the beginning, just to make sure that we don't have anything going on there. And then we talked briefly about how atypical carcinoids can be negative on the dotatate PET, but that doesn't mean that you don't do the dotatate PET. 40% of the time you can be positive. So I still start off with the dotatate PET, but if I find that it's negative, I like to follow patients with FTG PETs after that. In terms of labs, hormonal testing, if you have symptoms, I think it's a good idea. So we talked about wheezing, respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, in those situations, I would do uh, 24 urine for, for 5-HIA or plasma for 5-HIA if it is available in your center. And very rarely, if you feel like there are certain symptoms of Cushing syndrome going on, cortisol excess, I would check ACTH and cortisol as well. Something a little bit unique for lung nets also would be if you are suspicious that there's a syndrome in the family that's going on based on like a young patient or multiple other tumors in other endocrine organs, then checking for MEN1 syndrome is a good idea. 5% of the time, we do see MEN1 alterations in the families. So germline genetic testing is important in these patients. It can either be blood or saliva, or sometimes even like a cheek swab to check for germline genetic testing. And ultimately, once this is diagnosed, the diagnosis is done by bronchoscopy or transthoracic biopsy of the nodule or the mass. So either done by the pulmonologist or it's done by the radiologist from the outside through a needle biopsy. That sounds like a lot of testing. So you said a triple phase or multiple phase CT of the chest, MRI abdomen, pelvis, MRI brain. Can you speak a little bit to why a CT of the chest and not MRI? And why a MRI of the abdomen, pelvis, and MRI of the brain? 
The reason is that the MRI is actually not a good modality for entities that are moving because there's a lot of motion artifacts. Lung is not a good area for an MRI to image. So for that reason, we need a CT of the chest. Thank you for that. So juggling two different kinds of scans here. So CT chest, MRI abdomen pelvis, MRI brain, and then you said 5-HIAA of the urine or plasma, and then maybe the ACTH or cortisol to check for cushion. Yeah. And then the genetic testing with MEN1, which is important. Thanks for highlighting that. That can be something that people aren't aware of. So what about surgery? How do you decide if lung net can be surgically removed and what type of surgeon might help with making that determination? And I guess also when in the patient journey might they see a surgeon? I think as soon as we have a diagnosis of a lung net, it's important to get a multidisciplinary team involved. Sometimes that's the thoracic surgeons, the medical oncologists, the interventional radiologists, the radiation oncologists, and sometimes the interventional pulmonology as well. I can't stress enough how important that is because the thoracic surgeons can make the determination of whether this tumor can come out based on certain factors like location, size, proximity to vessels, number of sites, and things of that nature. But I think that's obviously key that you get a surgical opinion as soon as possible. Now, depending on where the tumor is, if it's close to the airway or if it's already causing you symptoms that are bothersome, I like to get our pulmonology, our lung doctors involved. Interventional pulmonology can assess the airways. And they even do resections for if you have a bronchial, endobronchial tumor in the airways, there are ways for them to take out the tumor piecemeal. And sometimes they can ablate the tumor with heat or even cold cryotherapy, which can re-expand the lungs in some cases if the lungs are collapsed. So it's important to get a lung doctor's opinion as well in some situations. I also like to get radiation oncology colleagues to give us an opinion especially if there's any tumors close to a blood vessel or close to an airway that I want to get treated right away so that we can worry less about that. I like to get a radiation oncology opinion about radiating these tumors. And occasionally, and this is kind of rare, but after surgery, sometimes we do follow up with radiation chemotherapy, but that's really only for the poorly differentiated carcinomas, like the small cell and the, and the large cell. There's no data that there's any evidence of benefit with traditional chemotherapy or radiation in slow-growing tumors after surgery. In those cases, we would just start surveillance with scans at that point. It's helpful to hear that there's many different options, not just surgery and cutting it out. And I'm wondering, you mentioned surgery, cutting, freezing, possibly radiation. How many times can these treatments be done, like surgery or cutting, freezing, or burning? Can they be done multiple times or is it once and that's it? No, that's a great question. I think it really depends on how healthy you are to begin with. So if your lungs are really healthy, if you don't have any other damage from, let's say, a smoking history or something like that, sometimes you can get multiple lung surgeries over time. We have seen that. Unfortunately, surgery does have its own limitations in terms of side effects and how much surgery one person can get. So sometimes we turn towards less invasive treatment options like radiation, which you can do multiple times during the course of the disease. So or you'll need essentially scans to keep an eye on these spots. And if any of them do pop up, they can be treated with a few fractions of SBRT, as we call it. Depending on how well you did on it and lung inflammation or any other side effects from it, it can be repeated many times. And for when we refer patients to our lung doctors, sometimes they do like to keep an eye on the airway with bronchoscopies periodically or as needed, depending on what a scan shows. So these are procedures that can be done more than once. Yeah. And you mentioned bronchoscopy. 
can they also go in and take it out endoscopically? Absolutely. Depending on the location, the size, how invasive it is. Sometimes even if they can't get it all, it's still a good idea to try and debulk it, as they call it, because it prevents complications like a low bar collapse or a pneumonia or bleeding or an infection. So it's a good idea to get lung doctors involved early on. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. So let's shift to talking about how are lung nets treated non-surgically and when and how would you do that? Yeah, so I think if there are, let's say, tumors in multiple parts of the body that we can't necessarily resect surgically or treat individually with radiation, at that point, the first thing I like to recommend is surveillance. It's really important to know that sometimes these tumors, these lung nets can be stable for many, many years. And I generally don't like to recommend any treatment to tumors that are not showing us clearly that they're growing or there are new areas in vital organs such as the liver. So I start off with recommending surveillance. Usually on average, scans every four to six months is a good interval of time. And just to really get familiarized with the tumor and its biology and whether it's aggressive or not. So if we can get away with not a whole lot of treatment, we can also prevent side effects that are associated with treatment. So I like to be conservative when we can. Occasionally, we can even treat certain areas piecemeal with radiation and continue to keep an eye on things. And that's a perfectly safe way of approaching these tumors. Now, at some point, let's say we do find multiple areas, a new progression in liver or new symptoms, then I would, at that point, think strongly about starting a systemic treatment. And usually, I think most oncologists would start off with something like a somatostatin analog. So lambreutide or sandostatin is a go-to for a lot of these patients. And the good news is, as we all know, these tend to have modest side effects in the majority of folks. And it can also keep the disease from growing. And if you look at the literature, on average, it works for two to three years. So it can really slow things down for that period of time. So it's a good treatment option straight off the bat, I would say, for folks who need it. Now, beyond the somatostatin or the lambreutide, if we need more treatments further down the road, then the options are usually oral pills. So treatments like capecitabine temozolomide is a very good chemotherapy combination that has been known to be effective for lung nets. So that's a go-to approach at that point for us. Now, we do also know that Efinitor, also called Everolamis, is actually an FDA-approved treatment for lung neuroendocrine tumors, actually one of the only FDA-approved treatments because the studies were done, which showed that Everolamis is modest in terms of shrinking the tumor, but it can also stop it from growing. So we do reach out for Everolamis for that situation. Beyond that, I think, is more novel treatments, some of which are off-label and I would say still being developed. So PRT or Lutathera is not an approved treatment for lung nets, but we do have now a clinical trial of PRT in lung nets, which we'll talk about later, but it's become a go-to treatment option for us. Otherwise, we do have certain pills that target the tumor vasculature. Cabozantinib is a trial is currently ongoing, Dr. Chan's PI for that. It essentially affects the tumor's ability to grow blood vessels and shrinks the tumors. And finally, we also have some evidence that immunotherapy, which is boosting the body's immune system to fight the cancers, may be an effective approach for lung nets. So that's something that we are actively studying as well. Beyond all of these systemic approaches, treatments that go everywhere and treat all the tumors, we do have certain targeted approaches specifically for the liver. Interventional radiology, the IR docs, can treat the tumors in the liver either through ablating it or through embolization, which can be done either with bland beads 
or with Y90. That's also a very nice treatment option. Sometimes we can use the liver-directed treatment options and delay the need to start something systemic by many, many years. So I'm a big fan of using these liver-directed treatments early on. Thank you for explaining many of the different options. Sometimes we may feel overwhelmed and think that there's only one or two, maybe three options. So you mentioned lots of things out there. So with surgery, being able to burn with ablation, cryotherapy, SBRT, the liver-directed approaches, and then CAPTEM, Everlimus, PRT, and then trials, tabazatinib, immunotherapy. So how do you sequence all this? What order do you do this in? Yeah, definitely an art more than a science, I would say. I think my approach generally is to limit the number of treatments as much as possible because A, we can avoid the side effects, and B, you want to prevent resistance from setting in early on. Because these tumors tend to be slow-growing, I like to have our options preserved for the future. Think of it as, you know, cards in your back pocket for the future when you need to play them. So I try to start off with treatments that have the least side effects and that are time-limited. So if we can get tumor control with some radiation or with embolization to the liver, then I would reach out for those before we reach out for some of the systemic treatments. But there does come a point when if some of these other treatments are no longer functioning, then at that point, I think CAPTEM is a very strong, very effective treatment, a chemotherapy option. And at that point, I'll also start thinking about clinical trials. And you mentioned PRT with Lutathera and how it's open in clinical trials. So at what point would you need to consider that versus other pills? Yeah, I think every clinical trial has its own inclusion criteria for who's eligible. A lot of them tend to be quite open. So as long as you have some disease progression in the last 12 months, you will be eligible for one of these trials. Where PRT figures in this, I don't think we have a firm answer yet, but I do think that it's important to get involved. If you are eligible to get involved in a clinical trial as soon as possible, if you are eligible for it. Yeah. And in particular, that one, because the control arm is Everolimus. So it has to be before people take Everolimus. That's exactly right. It's a challenge because ultimately we need more practitioners in the community to realize that we do have this option, but it is not an option if you start the patient on Everolimus before you refer to the tertiary center. So I think we need to do some, I would say, educating in the community to make sure that oncologists are aware of this option. Yeah. So the take-home message is consider clinical trials early rather than later. So you talked about monitoring and surveillance. So how are lung nets monitored and what types of scans, tests, and blood work should be done and how often? Yeah, I think when we are in the surveillance phase of things, we talked about the CT scans. I like to do a complete blood count and chemistries as well, just to make sure all the organ systems are working well. And depending on which net center you're at, sometimes some practitioners like to throw in a chromogranin as well. We do like to follow the chromogranins for a trend. As we know, individual values can vary a lot, but trends are more powerful. So we tend to do these labs and scans every four to six months. Now, in terms of what other types of scans, you have to be a little bit careful if the KI-67 number is on the higher side. So if it's, let's say, more than 10 or 20%, then sometimes dorotate PETs can be negative, especially in the atypical lung carcinoid scenario. So I would do an FTG PET, but it's not necessary that you need to do a PET all the time. If there's something on a CAT scan that looks suspicious, or if you want to know if your patient is a candidate for the Ludathera trial, for example, that would be a good time to get one of, or both of these PET scans. I know that you're very excited about research and you get excited talking about research. So what advances in the field or clinical trials should we be aware of? 
So we've touched upon the randomized study of Lutathera versus Everolimus. The good news is it's a randomized. So even if you, let's say, you start off on the Everolimus, the neat thing is that you would be able to cross over to Lutathera if the Everolimus stops working for you. So I think that's a very nice trial designed Dr. Pada and Dr. Hope's trial through Alliance. So we have that up and running. We need more, I would say, awareness in the community because it's important to let the FDA and some of these other key stakeholders know that lung neuroendocrine patients are interested and we are involved and we are engaged in research and that doing studies in rare tumor types is important and that we are very much involved in that and that we find that energizing. So I think it's important that we are able to complete these trials in a timely fashion just to get the word out there about lung neuroendocrine tumors and how it's possible to conduct these studies in rare tumors. Beyond that, I think some of the work that we've been doing at Ohio State is also exciting. So we recently finished a trial of immunotherapy in combination with temozolomide at Ohio State. So we had around 28 patients with neuroendocrine tumors who we treated with a combination, and 11 of whom actually had lung nets. And what we found was, and this has been published in clinical cancer research, that seven out of 11 patients with lung nets had a response to the combination. So around 64% is what that works out to. And that's exciting because we know that temozolomide by itself, maybe around 15 to 20% of patients respond to it. And immunotherapy by itself is another 10 to 20% or so. So we found more response than we would have otherwise seen with either of these agents individually. So we think that there is some synergism going on. So we are currently working on a larger randomized study hopefully through one of the cooperative group's support, we should be able to confirm this in a much bigger fashion. So I think if we're able to do that, then that'll be a great new option for our, our patients. So that's what we're currently excited about. That's really hopeful. We're really always looking for new treatments and also a lot of curiosity around that field of immunotherapy. So let me ask you, why do you think immunotherapy would work for lung nets? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Lisa. The answer is, we don't know yet. So there are certain markers that researchers have studied to try and predict who responds and who doesn't. Because if you look at the numbers, on average, it's around 20% or so who tend to have a really nice response. Now, different groups have described different markers. So one of them is looking for the immune protein on the surface of the tumors itself. Another approach is looking at the number of mutations that a tumor has, because the general concept is that the more mutations a tumor has, the more likely it is that the immune system will recognize it as a foreign and try to attack it. But the reality is even these approaches, we're able to identify a small fraction of the patients who respond, and they're not very specific. So sometimes even if you have these markers, you tend not to respond very well. So it is an open area of inquiry right now. I think it's a very hot area to try and understand why it is that certain new endocrine tumors do seem to respond and some don't. So in our study, we found that Lung neuroendocrine tumors, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors tended to respond, whereas small bowel, we didn't find too many responses. So I think these are all open questions for active research right now. But as of today, we're not able to really identify exactly who will and who will not respond to immunotherapy. And that also included well-differentiated as well as poorly differentiated lung tumor? Yeah, exactly. It includes both typical, atypical. Actually, most of the patients were typical and atypical. We did have one or two carcinomas, poorly differentiated ones. But yeah, the patients who responded, it didn't matter whether they were well or poorly differentiated. Okay. I know another question that comes up quite often, I know people who don't have somatostatic receptors, 
can feel discouraged because, oh, Ludothera is not an option for them. So is there anything being done to upregulate somatostatin receptors or to do anything about this? I think there have been some studies that what we call epigenetic mechanisms, meaning not really gene-related, but regulators of genes. There have been studies, I would say, in cell lines of trying to upregulate the expression of the SSTR2 gene. I don't think it's close to prime time, unfortunately, but I think it's a wonderful area for research because in lung net specifically, we have a good subset of patients who don't have SSTR2 expression. So I think the answer is going to be finding these mechanisms that regulate gene expression, which we call epigenetic mechanisms. We do do that actually quite often in thyroid cancers. Thyroid cancers tend to express receptors for radioactive iodine in a vast majority of patients, but we have realized that over the years, sometimes after these patients get iodine treatment, they become resistant to it because they downregulate the receptors. And this concept of redifferentiation, meaning re-expression of the receptors, is now established in thyroid cancer. So I think it's a wonderful idea for research to see, can we do that or something similar to that in new endocrine tumors? The answer as of today is we don't know yet, but I think it's a fruitful avenue for research. Okay. So while there's research in that area, you're not putting all your money on that card, right? So you're also working in this area of immunotherapy and seeing if that'll help. So you shared advances of the field. You're excited about this upcoming trial. What other new advances or treatments are you very excited about that you'd like to share with the community? I think, you know, overall, there's a lot of excitement and activity in the field. One thing to keep in mind is there are new treatments on the horizon. So PRT is not new for other types of neuroendocrine tumors, but the study that we are a part of, hopefully we will be able to get this approved for lung neuroendocrine tumors. I think we are all aware of the new generation of PRT treatments, the alpha emitters, which I think are on the horizon. And hopefully in the next few months to years, we will have access to that for everyone, including lung neuroendocrine tumors. I think immunotherapy clearly does have a role for lung nets. It's just a question of proving it in a larger study and also trying to understand why it is that some people have resistance to it. It's not specific to neuroendocrine tumors. I think there's a lot of effort and energy being expended in trying to understand why some people respond and others don't and why resistance happens. So I think we'll benefit from any advances that happen in the larger oncology field as well. So I think there's a lot to be hopeful about. I want people to know that lung nets Generally speaking, typical lung carcinoids, especially if things are stable, it's okay to wait and watch. Prognosis can be excellent. Sometimes more than a decade or so, I have had a lot of folks in that boat. But also, when you start to see progression, you have a lot of options out there, including standard treatments as well as more novel approaches coming down the road. Yeah, that's really helpful. There are a lot of options. And it seems like there have been more and more, especially in the last five or 10 years. Well, what a really hopeful way to end this. I mean, that there are lots of options, that there's more on the horizon, that you and other researchers are continuing to do the work to better understand lung nets so that you can pave the way for more treatment options as well. Any final words that you'd like to leave with the audience? No, I just wanted to thank Lisa. Thank you for this opportunity and everyone in the LACNITS community for giving me this opportunity to just connect with everyone and share my passion for lung nets. Thank you so much. We're really grateful for you, for your passion for lung nets. We need it. We need more like you. And I love seeing that big smile on your face. It's clear that you're really passionate and we really appreciate you. So thank you again for joining us and we look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to the LACNETS podcast. Go to our website, lacnets.org forward slash podcast for episode transcripts, resources, and patient stories. We want to thank our podcast supporters, Ipsin, ITM, Advanced Accelerator Applications, Kernetics, and Tercera Therapeutics. For more information about neuroendocrine cancer, go to www.lacnets.org. LACNETS depends on donations to bring you programs such as this podcast. Please consider making a donation at lacnets.org forward slash donate.